0: This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network
1: of Podcasts.
2: What happens when regular people work together to create massive, meaningful change on a global scale? Welcome to the Carbon Almanac Collective, a podcast where the volunteers who created the Carbon Almanac Share the insights and aha moments they had while collaborating on this landmark project to help fight the climate crisis. I'm your host, Jennifer Myers-Chua, and it's not too late to join in on the conversation.
0: I'm Alexis Costello. I'm Canadian from British Columbia. I've been living in Costa Rica for the last six years. And for this project, I worked mostly with the educators group, as well as building out some of the resources.
3: My name is Ryan Flayhive. I'm in Boulder, Colorado, and I wrote a number of sections in the impact part of the, the almanac as well as the Solutions section and then joined the education team, which has been super fun. It was a great collaborative experience and uh, made some new friends, and I really value the whole opportunity.
1: My name is Annie Purnell. I live in Louisville, Colorado. Like Alexis, most of my work up until this point has been with the EduDocs. My background is as as an instructional designer, so I was providing the superstructure for that the teachers can run with the ideas that all the people had, in turn, objectives and activities that would bring it home to the learners, what's going on in a, especially with Alexis's work, with a friendly and compassionate view instead of anxiety written.
2: Is there a climate change action that you want to challenge yourself to take this year, maybe reducing flights or eating less meat or something like that? Is there an action that you plan to take after finishing your work on this project?
0: It's interesting for us here because one of the things that brought us to Costa Rica in the first place was the idea that we wanted to live a more self-sustainable life. So we're already we're off the grid. We've got solar and microhydro going. We're raising our own chickens and eating local in our little community and stuff like that. For me the one that actually is going to impact, like the the change that we're making is with travel. Because with my work for a few years I was flying a lot. And um and it's wonderful and I love to travel and I really have missed that the last couple of years. But we've also been really aware of the fact that in this last two years of COVID and travel restrictions and that sort of thing, it's changed how much even driving we're doing. And we've realized that we've made it a huge impact kind of accidentally by not flying to Europe, by not flying back to Canada all the time. And um, we're already in discussion as a family of how we're going to keep that right now that we've, things are opening up, travel opportunities are coming back but being much more discriminatory about how we use that and not being frivolous with it as maybe we had been in the past. And so that's the one that we're really um, talking about as a group right now.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Ryan, are you making any changes?
3: Yeah. uh, Throughout my journey as a climate activist, I've had an opportunity to learn a lot about various aspects of, of the fight against climate change. And the one that I find... Most interesting right now that I'm getting most involved in is regenerative agriculture and regenerative ranching. It's kind of amazing to think that we could be feeding ourselves healthy food while also trapping as much carbon as possible in the soil. So not just as a consumer, but as an investor and as an advocate for the industry, I'm really trying to get the message out there about climate friendly beef, about climate friendly agriculture, because it's not that easy to find right now. And I think if we could get it onto regular shelves for normal people, we could really have an impact and trap a ton of carbon in the soil.
1: I was just wondering how you were doing that, Ryan, because Ryan and I both live in Colorado. It's kind of fun right now at this time of the year when we see the calves jumping around. In the, and uh, I was wondering how many ranchers have been open to hearing what he has to say. Sure. Well, I don't know that
3: I've actually changed any ranchers' minds yet, but I have interviewed a number of ranchers on my podcast and I get my beef directly from Blue Nest Beef, which was founded by a soil scientist from Shell who spent most of his career taking carbon out of the soil and put it in our cars and now is focused on, you know, using cattle to get carbon back in the soil. And not just that, they're Audubon certified. So they also are rebuilding bird habitats but using using cattle, which is counterintuitive because right, cows are the worst enemy. And they are. They're really they're really horrible for 99% of the industry. But when you look at 70-plus percent of the, the world's landmass is grasslands, if you're not, if animals aren't eating that grass, then all that carbon is not being sequestered and it's actually being released from the soil. So it's it's kind of part of just rebuilding our ecosystem.
2: I'd like to hear from each of you why you joined this project. So a lot of us got the email, but what made you say, hey, I'm going to do this, I'm going to sign up for this, and I'm going to take on a project pro bono. What was your reason for joining?
3: I mean, in a word, Seth, he's just an amazing man. I think that I can speak for most of the people in this project that we would all jump at the opportunity to work with him on pretty much anything, but such an important topic and knowing that he's going to have this multiplier effect that's Mm -hmm. beyond anything we could do individually, and we're seeing it. The three of us started early on when there were under 300 people and now there's thousands of people involved and now there's big companies involved and we're signed with Penguin Random House. I'm a publishing nerd. Most of my career has been in publishing. That's that's the premier publishing house for a project like this.
1: I'd have to piggyback on what Ryan said. But the other thing was when I saw the email, I have an active imagination and what appeared in front of my eyes was uh, an image of my children. And how could I not do this to say to my children – Oh, yeah, I had an opportunity to work on something and make a difference. And I turned it down. Then it was a no brainer.
0: The same thing. You know, I'm a mom. And the last few years, I've had this very much like walk the talk kind of mentality. We talk a lot about the things that we do in order to be self sustainable or something like that. But this was an opportunity to walk the talk. And also, I don't know about the rest of you. I also didn't necessarily think I was going to get in.
3: Um, (laughs) I actually actually didn't get in. I didn't get in at first. I had to write directly to Seth and and ask him to let me in. I said, this is too important.
0: I didn't think I was going to get in. I don't usually have imposter syndrome issues. I'm at the top of my field in my work. But I walked into this group and I looked around at the people in this group and I went, oh, my goodness, how am I in this group of people? Like, how did this happen? I have no clue what loophole I fell through in order to be allowed to be here. And then as I got to know everyone, I just got more and more amazed and more and more inspired. Some of the people in this community are so inspiring and have done such amazing things. So I'm very, very grateful for whatever fluke of algorithm (laughs) allowed me to slide in there. I'm going to
2: join in and say that I remember having those conversations with my husband. I'm like, you won't believe who's here. Like, I've read her book. I have his book. It's. It was just, I felt the same as you. This is a clerical error. They picked the wrong Jennifer. They put the wrong one of me in. I just find that so funny. I'd like to move on to you working in the project. Can you tell us about your most memorable moment while working on the project?
3: When I wrote my first article for the almanac and i was super proud of it and it's an area that i that i care about deeply and i feel like i know a lot uh, and i got a message from seth in in discourse like within it within an hour and so i was so excited but then i read it and he said basically you've got two really good sentences in there get rid of everything else and expand on those two <laughs> sentences <laughs> and uh
1: i'm sorry Ryan. <laughs> i
3: was like okay you know this is a a collaborative project. So I'm going to do it. And the reality is it came out much better. And then and then what we've seen through the educator project and that work as well, is that you get your work out there, but then there's the designers kick in and then the copy editors kick in and they turn what you wrote into something really amazing and professional.
2: Annie, have you had any emotional moments while working on this project?
1: Well, there are two that come to mind. One is I partnered up with Leaky, mm-hmm. who is... <laughs> Doesn't even have kids. And her ideas are so just amazing. I mean, I worked on three of her documents that she came up with. She's got them out there doing uh, stop motion animation. And then I had to go out and find stop motion animation software and piddle around in it and figure out how I was going to turn it into an activity. And it was just so so just it was an amazing heartfelt collaboration to work with her. The other thing is that right now, um, Mano and Anna Cosentino and I are working on, uh, because we're, our documents, we're looking for testers. And right now I can't say too much about it. But we're, we're on the verge of having a really amazing opportunity actually in New York and with a group of girls that I just, if they could run with this idea, the things that could happen for them and their community. It's just like, wow, it's humbling to think that something that we sat and worked on, and then can transfer into their lives and make a change is really uh, very touching.
0: Mm-hmm. Alexis, any emotional moments for you? I think one would maybe come from one of our educators meetings, and and Annie and Ryan are totally going to know where I'm I'm going with this. But the Educators Project came about because at one of the welcome meetings, Annie said something about wanting to work with educators. And I sent her a message and I was like, I'm in, let's do this. And and the two of us formed a group and people started joining us. And I think we had an idea of what that looked like. And then as more people joined in and as we started moving forward and as then Seth came in and looked at it, it was like, oh, that's actually not what we're doing. Very much like how Ryan says, you know, Seth looked at his thing and said, there's two good sentences here. Seth kind of came in on a meeting and went, welp, we're going to go this way. And it required a pivot. And in the end, that was a good thing. But I know that there was this moment at this meeting where I feel like probably half of us in the group were holding our breath for a second and trying to figure out what are we doing from here. And I had to kind of rearrange some things in my head. And after that, it was great. And I mean that's one of the things about working with a collaborative project like this is that it's not about it's not about me, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not about what I want to put out into the world. It's about what is working for us as a unit. And so that was that was one. And then also just putting together the lessons. I ended up writing, I think, five of the lessons that are actually in the educators document. And I really had fun with them. And they were things that as I was writing them, I was like bouncing them off my kids and they were offering ideas because my kids have all been homeschooled. And so it was fun to see them thinking about how they would actually run with this or play with it or something like that. So there's highs and lows of emotion as we go through. And it's it's been a very educational experience, I
1: think.
2: We touched earlier a little bit on imposter syndrome, but I'd like to connect with you and ask about comfort zone. Were any of you pushed outside of your comfort zone while working on this project? And how,
0: like, how did that happen? What's the story behind that? Maybe the only comfort zone thing is in the speed. Everything's moving so fast. And part of working with this group of people is that everyone's moving quickly, number one. And, you know, 90% of those people that are moving quickly are doing so in a different time zone than you. So sometimes by the time you've caught up, there were days when I would put something out in the morning and then, you know, I have to go to work. And at the end of the day, I look at my messages and it's like, oh, there have been 40 messages about this topic and I've now missed that boat. That ship has now sailed and someone in Europe has done it already. You have to be comfortable with that speed of processing which I think I might be slightly more comfortable with that than some people because of like Alt-MBA training and just that idea of you ship, you ship, you ship, you ship. But it was a little bit disconcerting sometimes to see how quickly something could change before you could even get back into it. And so it's a blessing and a curse to have things move quite that fast, especially this last month. At the beginning, things were moving a little bit more slowly. But as we were hitting deadlines, things started to move at warp speed which is amazing too, but tricky.
3: When I was working on topics related to solutions, I felt very, very comfortable. That's an area where I've got some some broad exposure and, and you don't have to go into a lot of detail you know, to explain them. But then closer to the end, it became clear that the impacts section is where pe- they needed some more writers. And so I was asked to write about coastline issues and water salinity issues that I really don't know much about. So I had to do a lot of research and really come to understand these topics well enough to put them in 200 words without plagiarizing. And so those were really tough. Those took a number of days, each one of them. And the good news is that they all got copy checked, fact checked. And so they, they, they came out really nice. I just needed to get the raw ideas out there for the team. But it was intimidating to write about topics that I didn't know a whole lot about.
2: I'm not going to lie. That scared me, too. <laughs> that really scared me. Annie, how about you? Were you pushed outside of your comfort zone?
1: Yes. And to piggyback on something that Alexis brought up about that moment when Seth showed up was, I I won't lie, it felt like I was punched in the heart. And it was having to come back from that was tough. And I have to give a lot of credit to Mano on that, that she's been a real partner in that way. And the other thing is, there's a passage, I don't know if it's in the practice or in This Is Marketing, where Seth talks about, basically, I'm going to paraphrase here, but just going for it. And it it may be around the time he talks about imposter syndrome. Once I had that moment of what Alexis called a pivot, that it was, the worst has happened. You know, after that, it was, okay, I'm going to throw it out there. If I get slammed for it, I've survived. It was getting to the other side of of that and finding out that I could not only survive but then move back into thriving and make a contribution. So that was my moment.
2: And when we're talking to educators about the climate emergency, what have you learned about how to communicate the issues that we are facing?
1: One of the things I know from my background that using words like emergency and things like that immediately puts people on edge. And that's one of the beauties of, sorry, Alexis, I just love what you do. And that it puts, it puts the tools of helping the teachers navigate a difficult subject with the students into their hands. So they're not dealing always in a crisis and with the kids anxiety, the learners anxiety about it. And once they move out of that state, they can be in an amazing creative space to find solutions. So I tend to steer away from words like emergency, crisis. I don't use those kinds of terms.
0: In the lesson plans, I was trying very hard to think about what does an instructor actually need? What does an educator need in order to get out of this? And so trying to think about clear learning objectives and that kind of thing so that it was very obvious when somebody would look at the lesson you know what headings they could kind of pop that under and what their students were going to get out of it but to elaborate slightly on what annie was saying just for some context uh, i work with specialized kinesiology and so there's um, an educational component to that some people have heard of brain gym or educate or something like that and a lot of that is about making sure that there's brain integration and being able to make sure that the right and left parts of the brain are working together on things. And there's just little things that people can do to help deal with stress and to make sure that they're assimilating information in the best possible way. And this works really well for like kids with learning difficulties and that sort of thing, but it also works anytime people are experiencing overwhelm. And so one of the lessons that I had been working on was um, to do with the section on climate anxiety that's in the almanac. Because for a lot of young people, this is a huge thing. And I think that maybe some educators might step back from the topic because they don't want to create stress and they don't want to create conflict. And so if we can offer a tool that is helping to be able to have those conversations without throwing everybody into tilt, I think that that's a really powerful thing. So, yeah, just to kind of explain what what she was talking about a little bit there and and why we're working with those things. And when we were first looking at the educator section, we were definitely looking at incorporating more of those kinds of techniques into the lesson plans for the instructors. And instead, this has become more like um, a resource that an educator can go to as a secondary thing in order to help alleviate that anxiety. I guess it's all about clear communication and then also making sure that we can communicate, you know, heart to heart and with the emotions and with those emotions being balanced for everyone rather than being kind of crazy.
3: We worked really hard to have a a clear and consistent pedagogical structure that helped set up assignments. And going back to the pivot that, that Annie and Alexis talked about, one of the things that Seth made clear to us is that our goal wasn't to create an exercise for every single part of the almanac, rather to model how the almanac can be used in class. And in his words, you know, once you get an instructor to do that once or twice, they get the joke and they can figure out themselves how to begin creating activities that might be more localized, that might be more specific to the types of students that they have. But our goal is really to model the initial behavior on how to actually bring the almanac into their curriculum.
2: When I think about this piece, when I think about the educator's guide, and I think about my experience in elementary school or when I was young and, and being taught by teachers, I remember in first grade, my teacher showing us that you could fill up a plastic water bottle full of water and put it in your toilet tank. I'm not sure if, if modern toilets work this way. Uh, but I remember some of those lessons from even then when I was young, when I don't know if we called it climate change at that point or anything, but like being mindful of the earth was important. And all three of you are really interested in this now. And it's almost like a values thing. And I'm just wondering if any of you can remember a moment back when you were that young and maybe being influenced by an educator that like stands out in your mind.
0: When I was in middle school. So going back to when I was about 12, I was part of the group that set up the, we called it the Green Club at our school and implemented things like a recycling program. And at one point we raised money so that we could do a big field trip. And our field trip was to go to Vancouver and see like the big recycling plant. So nerdy me and my other friends going to like science world and learning about all of the science and stuff and then going to the, the recycling plant. And you know, I remember that, that, that impacted a lot. And there were definitely teachers in that school that really fostered that idea and took that under their wing. I think that we kind of initiated that as kids, but to have the support of certain instructors was really, really helpful. You know, you can't really get that kind of program going in a school unless you have the support of the educational team.
1: I remember getting into fights with my father. He grew up in New York City, and he was a son of immigrants. And so his push was to do what was expeditious to make a living for his family. And having a global or an environmental consciousness wasn't anything that was his. And he and I often clashed about throughout his life because he's gone. And I think that the teacher issue that you were talking about to point... They were sustaining I can think of my biology teacher in in uh, sixth grade, looking at animals, especially when we got into dissection and seeing the impact of their environment on them, even though the formaldehyde had decimated a lot of things, but looking at life in that way in that with a microscope and seeing the impact of what was going on, those teachers sustained me when in my home environment. It was kind of hostile to the development of those kinds of ideas. For me, teachers are heroes and very important. And as a parent, when my children were born in California, they were we were always in field tripping someplace down to University of Santa Cruz to the dolphin tank or going up to the East Bay. And you couldn't even breathe at the dump. The methane was so obnoxious. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought why did I agree to sign this permission slip to, you know, for my kids, to be you know, it was just so it's been evolving, but it's just gotten deeper and deeper. And the teachers who were there, that's why I joined this to give them the tools that they could take it even farther and faster. Because I do think the kids, especially the younger, they have a sense of wonder, and they believe that they can do anything. They haven't reached that point where People tell them that's crazy or stupid or whatever. That so that's why for me, whatever tool I can build for the educators to reach the children and help support them is really important.
2: Ryan, how about little Ryan? Did he have any moments? Sure,
3: little Ryan was actually raised with with an environmental ethic, and you know, in Colorado, spending a lot of time in the outdoors. And um, my my parents taught me a lot about empathy and caring about others. At the time, they were just discovering the greenhouse effects. That wasn't the issue. The ozone hole was the issue then. And I actually organized my school's first Earth Day event and had the support of my school and was able to bring in speakers. And I don't know, for me, it felt like the the first time that I could have impacts and, and was introducing topics to my peers that they'd never heard about because it just wasn't the issue then, the environment so much, in their families at least. That was a big turning point in my climate or then environmental that's evolved into a climate trajectory.
2: Have you had any aha moments about the climate or environmental issues while working on this project? Honestly, one
0: that came up for me, one of the, the culture things about this, like people like us do things like this, right? So you land in a group of these kind of people that are all doing this passionately And then you come out of this group of people for a moment, and you start talking about the thing that you're doing with somebody else. And you realize that not everybody has this same consciousness and awareness. And not only does not everybody have the same consciousness and awareness, but some people are actively opposed to the consciousness and awareness that you are in. I remember one day I was very excited. You know, I had had a meeting that morning. We were meeting weekly for a while as an educators group and I was all fired up about something and I was writing lessons and I was doing things. And we met some friends and I was talking about what I was doing and was informed that climate change is just a myth designed in order to distract everyone. And it's just the next crisis so that our government can control our travel and our food consumption. And it was a big, it was a big thing for me because I you you take a step back and you take a breath and you kind of go, but wait, I've been reading all of this and this is data that we absolutely have. You have to sometimes take a step back and realize that not everybody has the same information. And that might take us back to that principle of Sonder, the idea that, you know, if you had the same information, if you knew to be true what other people know to be true, you would do the same thing that they do. And so there is, there are reasons why people have those feelings. And then we have to be able to be cognizant of that, but at the same time, still move forward in a way that, that makes sense. Right. So it's, it's sort of funny. My biggest ahas around this were not necessarily about climate change or the things that we were doing as a group, because most of those were already in alignment with where I was at in my life. It was in taking those ideas to someone else and, and realizing that there is, in fact, still a, a juxtaposition there that needs to be dealt with. Absolutely. Annie, do you have anything to add to that?
1: Um, I'd say the moment was when Seth goes, they're climate deniers and we don't have to deal with them. <laughs> you know, that's not You know, I was like, yes, that really I didn't have to adjust my thinking or be wooing them to I wasn't marketing the idea. I was just, oh, I can talk to people. And it wasn't that they didn't exist, but they weren't. To use the analogy, if you've ever been in the water and you have drag, you know, and Mm -hmm. being pulled forward, it was all of a sudden there wasn't that drag. And what it flipped over into what Alexis was talking about. I was able to get a lot more things done faster because they'll either come or they won't. But where we need – we're in such a a time of needing change. I can spend my time continuing to woo X, Y, and Z over here. But A, B, and C already are on board. And so that's where my effort's going.
3: So there's this balance between personal action and collective action. And personal action in this crisis is obviously important. But, you know, me putting solar panels on my, car, on my house or, or, or recycling or getting a, an electric car isn't going to change the overall trajectory. The collective action that can lead to institutional change is what we really need. Mm-hmm. And that's why I find this project so interesting, you know, because with my podcast, I can reach an audience. But with this book and with, you know, Seth's name on it and with Penguin Random House behind it and the marketing push, there's going to be politicians reading it. There's going to be people who can, can make institutional change happen. And I think we can only do that through collective action. And that's mm-hmm. what this, this book really is for me.
2: So on a scale of helpless to hopeful, where are you now? And do you think that being a part of the Carbon Almanac project has shifted where you are along that line? I'd love to hear your thoughts.
1: I'm hopeful. I love the people I've worked with on this project, just being around them and spending Time working on this has made me very hopeful, and yeah, it lights me up. I enjoy the interactions with the people who are, especially the people I've become closest to, are the people on um, our edu team. Other people in the Akimbo world that I know, like um, Anna, I because we were in the podcasting workshop together. I'm just really grateful.
3: I'm mixed, so I'm a I'm a skier, and when you're a skier you see things changing quickly. You know, like I, I didn't ski California this year because their season was so short. We're actually doing all right in Colorado, but a lot of the stuff's not open. So from that point of view, and as much as I love skiing, when I'm up there, sometimes I just think about it too much. Are my, are my kids going to be able to enjoy the sport as much as I do? But on the other side of it, because I do have kids and my daughters are the reason that I, I am a climate activist, I have to be hopeful and I have to hope that between projects like this, because there's other projects like this going on simultaneously that we haven't heard about, that collectively they can lead to something that along with hopefully some new technologies and some changes, broad changes in lifestyle and, and legislation, we we can do this, but it's we don't have much time.
2: Yeah.
0: It's not too late, but there's not too much time. Exactly. Alexis? I, I think I'm in the same boat as... Ryan, and I needed a moment to articulate it because when I look at the people involved in this project, I'm hopeful, right? There are amazing people doing amazing things. And when I look at my kids, you know, one of the, uh, I have twins that'll be 20 in May, as well as the, um, little dramatic one that you saw in here a moment ago. We had a conversation with the educators group one day where we were talking about the fact that it's the, the ones that are in middle school and in high school now are the ones that are going to be the policymakers in a few years here. So when I look at them, I feel hopeful. But the other side of it, and I I feel like actually this became more real for me maybe in this last few months of working with this project, is I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. And it's impossible to look at what happened in Colorado had a fire, British Columbia, yeah. which, I mean, is one of the most beautiful places on earth. I've been all over the place. British Columbia is stunningly gorgeous in nature, and it has been a hot mess this year. And that is from a combination of fires and floods, and, like, this is climate change in action. And it utterly destroyed, you know, my my home. Uh, my home turf this last year. And so it's difficult to kind of see how that's going to get a little bit worse before people really are willing to make the big changes. Because we're talking about big changes in the almanac here. We're not calling for people to recycle their pop cans anymore. The time for that has passed. Like we're, we're calling for bigger change. It'll be interesting at, at any rate to see how things play out because I think people still think that they have a lot of time and and we don't. And that's if people get one idea from reading the almanac. I hope that's it. the The time is not five years in the future, ten years in the future. The time is absolutely right now. I've just been grateful to be in the space with them for this last few months. And you know, it, it it's funny. Ryan and I realized uh, at one point in the middle that we actually have like some common friends and common space. And it, it's a small world. And I think that it's one of those moments where you kind of go, Oh, right. No, forget seven degrees. We're all connected by like two and three degrees these days. And so each of us has a big reach. And when we make these connections, I think it it strengthens our, our reach. So yeah, I'm just very happy to be connected with these people that are doing these things. And, uh, And to have gotten to know them better over the course of the last few months. Ryan, do you have any final thoughts?
3: Buy a book. Definitely buy the book, everybody. It's cheap. It's good. It's really well designed. It's not meant to necessarily be read cover to cover. It's a lifetime resource. Mm -hmm. So buy the book.
0: And I, I hope the public knows that, like, how this came about. Like, this absolutely is a labor of love. There are hundreds of people that worked Really hard to put this together. Nobody made any money on it. Nobody was in charge. People just created little tribes and little groups and worked together on things. And I just about wept when I saw the actual like final markup of the whole thing, right? With all of the illustrations and how it was all going to, to look together in a finished copy. And I thought, how amazing that you can just take a group of people And without a boss, without a financial incentive, without any of that, just have them put something together like this in such a short period of time. I I hope everyone who looks at the book realizes that that's what that is. It's just a complete labor of love and a gift for everyone.
2: You've been listening to the Carbon Almanac Collective. This podcast is part of the Carbon Almanac Podcast Network. For more information, to join the movement, and to order your copy of the Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Subscribe and join us next time to get more insights from regular people mobilizing to help the world fight the climate emergency.